I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Okay, Chester's new uh, uh, Chester's new nickname. It's tricky. It's Chester the Dive Mester. Mester? Well, it's supposed to be Dive Master, but that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> So you have, it's like you got to kind of mash your E and A. The master. Chester hmm. the dive math master. <laughs> what about dive meister? Dive, Chester the dive meister? Yeah, that works. Yeah. Chester turned into, Chester's like a phenomenal freediver now. Chester's like a better freediver than me now all of a sudden. It's not true. <laughs> it's like. It is true. It blows my mind. What day was it? What was the day you couldn't really get under the water? You couldn't well, like break the, the day surface before tension? yesterday, so. <laughs> Yesterday was what, Saturday? So it would have been Friday? Yeah. So Friday he can't really get underwater. And on Saturday he's a 50-foot diver. 50-foot hanging out. Yeah, hanging fish. out, looking around, relaxing. <laughs> What's your secret, Chester? Uh, the first day I was flailing around like shark bait. And the second day I just was like, I don't know, I just got to relax because I can swim. And I can hold my breath, and I think I know how to clear, so I just have to relax. So I relaxed, and I think I only made three dives, like three or four dives all day, all day yesterday, but like just tried to make sure my heart rate was low, and yeah, just relax. And then mm-hmm. the, when I was diving in Hawaii, the thing that hurt the most was I'd go down, 
and I didn't know how to equalize my mask, and my eyes were getting sucked out of my head, basically, and that was, like, very, it limited me a lot. Yeah. But now that I just pushed a little bit of air into that mask and relaxed, it was sweet. And just diving. So in Louisiana, there's a muck line. And not all the spots, but a lot These of the spots we Merc, were at. Right? Merc, yeah, Merclair, yeah. And y- you can't see anything. So you just, it's kind of freaky, but you keep swimming down, keep swimming down, and all of a sudden it's like clear. You start seeing fish around. And then watch. I was able to then watch you guys do what you do, and it just helped. You know, everyone's moving nice and slow and smooth and relaxed so watching helped a bunch too do you think you're going to give up on walleye fishing now nope it still is going to be interesting to you i think you might try to start hunting walleye you know staying up in a boat not knowing what's going on down there yep all your fancy electronics when you can just go down there and look well you know i don't think anybody in those walleye circuits scout by diving that would you would learn a lot yeah in my uh, freshwater diving in Arkansas, uh, the the walleye and st- striped bass, everything, you get a complete different pers- perspective of what it's like versus what the rod and reel guys th- yeah, see. For It'd sure. be amazing for scouting. Yeah. Brandon, inter- inter- everybody introduce themselves. Brandon, introduce yourself. Uh, Brandon Hendrickson, ecstatic sport fishing, uh, Venice, Louisiana. So tell everybody what that is. Um, what is that? Um, not not Venice, but tell everybody what your what your business is, your line of work. So I run uh, offshore uh, sport fishing uh, charters here. Uh, tuna, swordfish is our primary thing. Uh, love to spearfish, though. That's kind of how I got got into it. It's been my main thing for years. And it, but but you don't you don't guide spearfishing. I do not. I do not guide spearfishing, only because of liability issues. Got it. Yeah, we can't get insurance. That'd so, be tough, yeah. yeah. Is it that you can't, or it would make it untenable? Like, it would just be, like, totally impractical? Oh, it, I could do it in a heartbeat. I get probably half a dozen requests every no, week. No, no, I mean, from the insurer's perspective. Like, you could, but it would just be, like, outrageous. It'd be outrageous, yeah. It's, it's difficult to find the insurance. And, I mean, my insurance is already crazy, and it, could, it would double what I'm, already, what I'm already paying. Got it. Yeah. And just make it that it's out, out too expensive to get clients. Yeah. Your average client wouldn't be able to afford it. Got it. So. And you were saying spear fishermen are tight wads a little bit? <laughs> like more so than tuna fishermen? <laughs> yeah, more so than, yeah. Very thrifty. I think yeah. the, uh, the average free diver spear fisherman is pretty thrifty. It's a younger crowd. Uh, it, it, the cost of getting into it is not super high versus, uh, you know, our middle age yeah, average, like average rod real client. It's a scrappy, more like dirt baggy kind of. <laughs> not dirt baggy, like not dirt baggy, like dirty, but dirt baggy, like just a little more, just a little, yeah, younger. Yeah. Sleeping on couches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's or, a lot. It's a lot of young, a lot of young kids. Hobby. Earthy, earthy not like people. old yachtsmen. They're not yachtsmen. No, not your average one. Yeah. Not. Greg, introduce yourself. Uh, Greg Fonts, distributor for Rob Allen Spearfishing Products, and. That's about it. Mentor to Steve here and there, if he listens. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. He's the mentor. Mike? Uh, Mike Rabe, underwater cinematographer. Uh, shot a couple episodes with you guys. This is my first with you. 
Yeah. You, know, you prefer to be filming underwater. I do. But I do bubbler stuff too. Yeah. Um, how long have you been diving for? Since 2005. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So you didn't grow up with it? I mean, I always like snorkeled in the lakes and stuff. It wasn't yeah, until yeah. I moved to California. And as soon as I moved, I took a scuba course and bought an underwear camera. That's why I moved to California to be an underwear photographer. And because uh, the school I went to had an underwater photography program. So I left school in UNC and moved to California. So Haven't you're a back. trained underwater photographer? Yeah. Hmm. You ever been bit by a shark? Not, not yet. <laughs> well, almost yesterday. Got close yesterday to, to bull sharks. And then, Justin, have you been on the show before? I uh, have, your wife, yes, Kimmy the Hawaii has. episode. Okay, so yep, you, you joined in. Too, yep. Yep. Another underwater cinematographer. Yep, my name's Justin Turkowski. I'm an underwater cinematographer. I'd say camera operator, but I learned the underwater uh, camera stuff later on from Kimmy. Kimmy taught me it. Yep. Yep. And of course, Chester, the dive master. Meister. Dive, dive meister. Chester. He, he's going to be the next uh, sponsored athlete from sponsored Meister. Sponsored Meister in Greece. Meister athletes. Yep. Oh. Carbon fins, wetsuit. Yes. Chester's going to quit working. He's going to have too many options available to him. Chester, are you allowed yeah, right. to talk about being on the, the you and Seth? Uh, Seth's got gastrointestinal problems right now and can't join. Yeah. But are you able to talk about... Um, uh, what it means to be the angler of the year, not that you are the angler of the year. We're not the angler of the year, but this is for the Montana walleye tour that Seth and I are fishing, which consists of four tournaments in Montana. And ideally you want to fish them all. So that would up your odds to become angler of the year, which means they take your top three tournament finishes mm -hmm. and you get points. And I'm not quite sure how the point system works, but obviously if you do better in the tournament, you're going to get more points. Um, and we have done two out of the th three tournaments that have happened so far. I think we're sitting in 17th place, um, which is pretty good. Um, out of quite a few boats, quite a few teams, we have one more left. We get back from this trip in Louisiana we have a day to unpack, repack, get the boat rigged, get all that stuff, say our hellos and goodbyes to our wives, and head out to Tiber for the last one. Hmm. And if we do well, it'd be sweet to place top 10 in anger of the year. If we do well, it could happen. You never know. It's great, man. You guys are tearing it up. Just fish hard. Yeah, good luck. Okay, now you guys got to bear with us while we, we got to talk about a bunch of new stuff. First off, this isn't really news because it's like hundreds of years old. We, uh, we recently covered something where we were covering some guys looted an ancient archaeological site in Tightwad, Missouri. We got to talking about how does, how did Tightwad, Missouri get its name? The guy writes in and says, a listener writes in and says, I thought I'd share the local history on how Tightwad got its name as it was taught to me my entire childhood by every old man within 30 miles. So Tightwad was once upon a time, once upon a time called Edgewood, Missouri. Here's how he's got his name. A postal worker long ago stops into a local produce shop 
fixing to buy himself a watermelon to give to his wife. You tracking, Chester? There's a big, huge bin of watermelons, and they're priced whatever. He digs through and finds the best watermelon he can find, brings it to the counter. The shop owner tells him, well, that watermelon is unusual for the bin. Unusually and nice. Therefore, the watermelon you selected is actually 50 cents more. The postal man was livid about this and returns to his mail office. The town has like 69 people in it. So every time a piece of mail was coming into Edgewood, the postal worker would scratch out Edgewood and write tightwad on it and send it along as a snub to the watermelon salesman. He says in other versions of this story, it was a chicken, not a watermelon. So there's that. You think that's true? I don't know. I don't know. Either. I got to think about it longer. <laughs> uh, every time in the summer we get into summer, <clears throat> we always get a lot of letters from people who are having uh, access problems while fishing, like real mean people in Florida that set up sprinklers and shit to like, if you go fish by their dock, their sprinkler kicks on. Or you go to fish by the dock and they go out and turn their boat engine on and idle it to scare away the fish. Whatever they can do to harass fishermen. Listener writes in about this. Now, he, he, he's a respectful chap who wrote in and he's being purpose, purposefully vague in his explanation of where this is. Because he's like, for all I know, the guy's right. But it's a big lake in Lake County, Florida. He says there are several springs that feed into canals that connect to this lake. The canal that he's referring to has been a public waterway for as long as he's been alive. And in fact, he knows it's been regarded as a public waterway for at least 30 years. Presumably, it was public many decades before that. There's crystal clear water, a lot of hybrid bass. So it's always a popular spot for swimmers, and anglers. A single landowner owns both sides of this canal, and he's always been unfriendly, and lately he's been really waging war on users, bass fishermen. Now he's gone so far as to go ahead and erect a motorized drawbridge to once and for all block the canal. Huh. This guy's like, is this an illegal deal? Now, in all fairness, I can't tell you if that's illegal, and I don't know the story. Uh, it's aggressive. I mean, he's blocking public waters. Or not. Right. I mean... We really have no right to talk about this, because I don't know. Well, uh, it, right. But I think about my, it... I didn't, do my, I, didn't, I didn't do my research. Think about in Montana if someone like put something like that over a river where you used to be able to get a boat through. But I don't know that that's the case here. Right. It's interesting to me, but I don't know. Anytime someone tells me a story, it always pisses them off, so usually I don't say it. But you know what I'm always thinking when someone tells me a story? I'm always thinking, it's probably another side of that story. Oh, yeah. So two, I don't know. Two sides to everything. If, he was more, if, the, if the person wants to write in and be more specific about which canal it is, I bet you we will get a lot of more dedicated 
vetted feedback about what the legal play is here. But with, without you saying where this is, it's just too hard. We're not going to be able to go get a bunch of professional opinion on it. We need you to drop a pin. He needs to drop a pin. You can still get a canoe through there. Yep. You can slip a canoe through there. See that picture. But you don't know if you're going to be some pistol-waving canal owner on the other side of it. He's even... <laughs> on his little drawbridge, <laughs> he's even got like this little extra board hanging down. Is it connected to the bottom? <laughs> no, there's no way. Uh, so, yeah. We just you, need... you get more specific, and I'm sure a lot of people... Because whenever we do this, like people weigh in. They're like, I know that spot, and here's the deal with that spot, and you'll get a lot more feedback. You guys could probably all sneak through there with your wetsuits on yeah, and no one would ever through. know. You guys would look like <laughs> SEAL Team 6 going through there. You now, here's a real super interesting story. Um, it's an old story, but it's been made new again. And I'll, I'll make it relevant by saying uh, on our last episode, uh, recent episode, we had the writer, photographer, commercial fisherman from Alaska, Seth Kantner, who, as we explained, grew up in a sod igloo. He brought down to our studio uh, whale meat, and we enjoyed uh, bowhead muck tuck. Um, so blubber with a little chunk of skin attached was kind of right now my favorite food. Um, that coincided nearly in time with a real development for the Macaw tribe of Washington, who is a step closer to, this is in northwest Washington, the Macaw tribe, they're one step closer to legally resuming the hunting of gray whales. Let me give you a little background and understanding this. The Macaw tribe in 1855 signed a treaty with the U.S. government, which ceded a bunch of their historic lands and secured for them certain things, including whaling rights. So they, treat, they had a treaty negotiation with the U.S. government who never, ever, ever defaults on an agreement that they would be able to continue whaling, okay? And they did continue whaling. They, they whaled until 1928 when they voluntarily abandoned whaling in 1928. Now, you might be like, why would they do that? Well, here's why they did it. At that point in time, commercial whaling enterprises had greatly reduced whale numbers. They were historically harvested harbor seals, some other marine mammals, but they targeted gray whales. There was global efforts at that time to curtail and end whaling. And also the tribe had been, you know, influenced by like Americanization programs, right? Like everybody get on the same program, great American melting pot. So culturally, they moved away from it, and there were very low whale numbers, and there were global pressures for governments and others to end whaling. In fact, the Macaw quit whaling before some countries ended their own organized whaling programs. Fast forward from 1928 to the mid-90s, and gray whale estimates at that time, gray whale population estimates, were up to around 20,000 animals. So a lot of whales and the macaw announced their intention to resume whaling they were going to resume whaling by getting a whale but in all that time between 28 and the mid 90s whales had become like cultural deities 
they had become almost, if you want to understand like how the, our culture feels about whales, they, they revere whales almost as much as they revere dogs. Dogs are the new whales now. Yeah. Like, you, you definitely hear save the whales. Yeah, but I mean, like dogs, like now, like, you know, in the old days, like my dad would talk about being made to go down and, and put puppies in a bag with a rock and throw them off the pier in Lake Michigan. Jeez. To get rid of extra puppies if you had a dog that had extra puppies. That's, that shit doesn't fly anymore. Absolutely not. So like like <laughs> dogs have entered this almost like human class, right? Oh, yeah. I feel like yeah. a and, lot of people are having dogs and not having kids anymore because mm-hmm. they're kind of just satisfied with, the, with yep. the dog. They don't live. They don't last as long. Dogs? Yeah. No. You have kids. It's like, <laughs> you know, they'll still be around when you die. You get a dog. It's like the end's in sight. <laughs> You're like, I'll have this dog for like 13 years, then oh. it'll die. Not a big deal. When, when our dog dies, it's going to be a bad day in the Floyd household. Really? Oh. Your wife's da- going to take it hard. She loves that dog more than she loves me. <laughs> so when they wanted to get back into whaling, whales had entered. Like the Save the Whales thing had become like so effective that it had become cold. Like people would be more mad about you killing a whale than you killing a person by far. Uh, and they had to put up with that. So there's, there was kind of like two primary viewpoints came out about tribal whaling. Um, and it came from both sides. It was kind of coming from the right and the left in a way where people were like, that for the tribe to choose a resumption of what, what the tribe was saying is they're saying like, we're going to resume this like thing. Like our culture is based on whaling. So we're going to resume something that has great societal importance to us. And we're going to resume whaling as taking up our ancestral culture, assuming our ancestral rights, um, reestablishing our treaty rights, having a cultural connection to our forebears. Like these were things that they articulated as being very important to them. And the blowback was like varied, okay? The blowback to the tribe came in two ways. One, it was sort of like this idea that like, if you're gonna take up historic cultural practices, then you should resume all of your historic cultural practices. That so like, if whaling's so important to you, why don't you bring back widow burning? Why don't you bring back Native American slavery and slave trade practices? Why don't you resume human sacrifices? Why don't you resume intertribal warfare? Okay. The other take on it was, well, then you should give up everything that modernity has given to you. If you're going to take up whaling, then you better give up electricity. You better give up basketball shoes. You better give up welfare assistance. Like, if you're going to be like the old times, you got to give up all the new stuff. And this is like the heat that this tribe took. There was more legal wrangling than I care to get into here and to be like too hard to track the whole damn thing. But they went ahead and killed whale in 1999. Uh, People got great glee out of the hypocrisy that they used a traditional canoe with harpoons, yet they had backup boats and a 50 caliber rifle that after they harpooned the whale, rather than killing it in traditional practices, which would have been basically getting up and lancing it behind the skull where the spine hooks up, 
they shot it with a 50 caliber rifle, which apparently came on the recommendation of a veterinarian. So people had a heyday with like, oh, it was kind of traditional, but kind of not, and how hypocritical, and people turned into a fiasco for the tribe. They had all the usual suspects, right? Humane society, um, they had PETA, on and on, totally bent out of shape about them killing this one whale. They had to contend with news helicopters. They had to contend with protesters and boats trying to run them down. Just a total disaster for everybody. But they got their whale. A bunch of people got their first ever taste of whale blubber, right? And then it was given a lot of press that a lot of the whale meat rotted on the beach and they, had, they didn't know how to take care of the whole thing. But they were like stepping back into getting back into this thing. A family tried again in 2000 to kill a whale, and they were again hounded by news helicopters. The Coast Guard was involved. Apparently, a woman was trying to harass the chase, was trying to harass the whalers in a jet ski, and she got hit by a Coast Guard boat and was litigious about that. Uh, again, made it a total hassle for them. They haven't done any whaling since because they've been waiting on the federal government to give them the okay to resume whaling for real like with all red tape eliminated when they came when they did the marine mammal protection act you had in a, in a for instance native alaskans have all these carve outs for the marine mammal protection act um siberian eskimos have carve outs for the marine mammal protection act where they're allowed to, to resume whaling for traditional practices the macaw didn't but for like 13 years they've been doing an environmental impact statement on whether they can get one of these legitimate carve-outs from the feds to do their whaling. And they just released a, an a early, like a draft of the environmental impact statement, which suggests that in early 2023, so coming up early next year, they'll get the green light for a six-year period to kill 12, to kill 12 whales over a six-year period. And now we're in that beloved period of all this shit called the uh, public comment period, which you always wonder, like, is anyone, who, do they listen during the public comment period? The problem with the public comment period is you know they're going to, you know that the Save the Whales people, you know that their, like, radical animal rights movement is just going to dominate the public comment period. Oh, yeah, it does not sound like a peaceful gathering or comments coming their way by any means no it's like the 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 anti-hunting crowd will dominate this period uh, a lot of times i always find that like non-native like non-native american hunters usually aren't that interested in native american hunting rights because it's like because legally it's been set up to legally it's been set up to put at odds right like people of euro-american descent um often have like your hunting like if you're of euro-american descent your hunting privileges are regarded as much less important than native american or native alaskan hunting privileges which creates a lot of resentment there's this kind of this idea that like whatever happens to them doesn't impact me and if I'm a Euro-American, a hunter of Euro-American descent, 
they're not going to have my back when it comes to my disputes for my rights. That was lightning. Got quite a boomer there. And thunder. We're in a rainstorm, so if you hear a little the whole time, it's just pouring down rain. Sets the mood. And if someone's of, if you're like a hunter, like a hunter in America of Euro-American descent, you're going to view like, why do I want to have the, this is a common perception I hear from people. Like, why would I have Native Americans back on their hunting rights issues? They're not going to have my back on my hunting rights issues. Or this is this idea that like, it's these two things. Like Native Americans are negotiating their hunting privileges in in just a completely different realm than what, than what the American population at large is doing to protect and get their hunting rights. And, and in fact, often like people of Euro-American descent or, or not, let's just say non-tribal, I think it's cleaner to say non-tribal individuals, non-tribal individuals get their hunting privileges and all their bag limits and everything is set through state wildlife management agencies. In tribal organizations like tribes, and tribal organizations often negotiate directly with the feds. So we have, we, we like occupy these completely different realms. Uh, we live under different jurisdictions. So I think that a lot of people would look at like what the Macaw have going on with whaling and would just think like, what does that have? Why does that have anything to do with me? Like, why would I care if they can whale? Um, they're not going to look out for my right to fish. In fact, their rights to fish often trump my rights to fish. So if it's good for them, maybe it's bad for me. My view on it is if you look at who's opposed to them, it's like, it's like the radical animal rights movement is opposed to macaw whaling. And you know how you often can like pick your friends by your enemies? I would just say like the people who are opposing them are not your buddies. So I reflexively looked at this and I'm like, I, I hope that they are able to resume their whaling. And that's not, and I don't think that what that means is it might open up whaling down the road to dudes like me. Um, well, that ain't ever going to happen. Yeah. And it's like, I would be hesitant to go get a whale for fear that it would be hard to, that, that um, I wouldn't be able to eat anything but that whale for the rest of my life. Once you fill a freezer with a whale, <laughs> you'd need a big Dude, you got a, freezer. You're done hunting and fishing. Yep. Yeah. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be like, a lot. I think if they're recovered, and if you look at what they're proposing, 12 whales over six years, if it's done responsibly, like, great. Yeah, it's just, there, there's, there's a thing we've been talking about over the course of a couple of days. We've been talking about, like, this is a good segue, actually, to, to these waters. Uh, the other day, we were, uh, I was expressing this view that, that the world is more, it's sort of like, it's, wildlife management it ha- has to be considered in sort of like locally specific areas, and it has to be considered in terms of like, you have to get down to the gnat's ass on a lot of wildlife recovery issues. We we're discussing that, that globally, right, like, as a collection of species, as a collection of many species, globally, sharks are in trouble. Meaning uh, there are shark species in trouble, like specific shark species are in trouble in specific areas of their range. But that doesn't mean that all sharks are in trouble across the entirety of their range. 
it, it's more complicated than that. And I think that the, the whale movement created this thing that sort of like, that they, they've lumped all whales together and they've viewed them globally to say that a lot of whales are imperiled across much of their range in the 1980s would have been like a very true statement. Certain whale species were imperiled, some were imperiled in particular areas of their range and some were imperiled over the entirety of their range, but that in no way meant that all whales are imperiled everywhere that whales live. Yeah, just like the sharks. Just like the sharks. And you cannot come and make an argument that in Northwest Washington, gray whales are imperiled or that it even has any bearing on like global gray whale populations that this tribe were to kill a whale or two every year. It's not an issue. It's just public perception. It's a public perception battle. If a couple killer whales or orcas, they got like rebranded as orcas. If a couple orcas kill a gray whale, it's the greatest thing in the world. It's going to be like David Attenborough will be like, this is so cool or whatever, however he puts it. They love it. But a, but a, a Native American tribe kills one. It's like, oh my God. Those same people watch it in Monterey every year. There's always a couple gray whales get killed by orcas there and they it's the circle of life they love it yeah <laughs> well i think it's it's <laughs> it blows kind of a, my mind it's it's interesting because i think there's too many times where if like well i can't if i can't take advantage of that resource i don't want anyone to be able to take care of that or take advantage of the resource and we saw this in the uh closure of the abalone fishery in northern california where you'd go to these dfg meetings and so explain what dfg is uh Department of, uh, Department of Fish and Game, which is now changed its name, but um, oh, that's right. <laughs> what is it now? Uh, this is a big issue. So it like there are a lot of state agencies yeah. that just have wildlife in them, like our our state agency, yeah, um, Montana FWP, Fish, Wildlife and Parks. So Fish, Wildlife and Parks. They never called it game. Yeah, it was always wildlife. So no one cares because it was always wildlife, but. Californians resented the idea yes, that fish animals game. Yep. are game. Yep. So it's fish and wildlife now. So they changed it to be like, well, it's like a value judgment you're placing. Yep. You're saying that like wildlife resources are like game for the taking. Yeah. And so they wanted to make it wildlife as part of California's grant. And I'm not trying to hack on you boys. I'm not hacking on you, you boys. I'm not hacking on you boys at all. Yeah. I'm just saying that California is gradually but steadily transitioning away from consumptive use. Correct. I would agree with that. There's yeah. no example where they're not. Right. No, and they're, they're phasing out consumptive use of wildlife resources. Yeah, and when you look at something like the abalone fishery, you have these meetings after meetings and people would bring in videos of these areas that are completely healthy. And we're talking about specific areas just because one, one area is unhealthy doesn't mean there isn't an area that's sustainable and that you should be able to harvest from. And you'd go to these meetings and you'd have all the passionate you know, abalone hunters out there. But then I don't even know where these people would come from, but you would have this line of 50 people that would talk about, well, I think we need to close it because I want it to be here for my kids. And I like going to the ocean and whale watching. And like, you're, th that's nice, but you're not using the resource. And if you're not using the resource, you don't really understand the resource. So it's one of those things of, to just kind of paint broad strokes of I want it closed because I want it to be here for my kids. That might not actually not be the case. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things if, if you let areas be overpopulated or you don't monitor them, you know, they can actually become more unhealthy and, and collapse even more. Uh, and 
my big issue with that was when they were doing surveys, they would survey specific sites over and over and over again. They would never go out of those sites and go, okay, well, hey, what are in these MLPAs? How are the MLPAs doing? They would never survey the protected areas to actually see what an untouched area was doing. So I think it's just interesting that, you know, just it's just so general of like, oh, this one area is bad. We should shut it down. Mm -hmm. Or I don't want you to have it. So I, you know, I don't want to have it. So you shouldn't have it. And it's one of those things of that's because you don't actually use the resource. I don't, I'm not going to rush out and go hunt a whale. I'll tell you that much if I could. It's one of those things. If that's culturally important to a tribe, uh, you know, that's, you know, if healthy populations persist, then they should be able to harvest one. But uh, I do feel that, it, that, that the whaling spirit resides deep in my homunculus, though, <laughs> because... <laughs> When we're out fishing and you're like cruising along out to a fishing spot yeah. and there's a whale out in front of you breaching <laughs> along, I do some part of me is like, my God. Just like, what am I scratching you know what I mean? Like, just like you're just like, what a, like, to think of people in a skin canoe. Oh, yeah. Like, to think no. of people in a boat made of walrus hide paddling up with homemade tackle made entirely from bone and wood. Yeah. And animal parts, paddling up, fixing to sink a harpoon into that some bitch, yeah. is like that is a level of gur. That's a level of gur, not often achieved by modern man. Well, I think people discount the the amount of effort it takes to do some of these things, right? You know, like like again, the abalone fisher fishing the rigs out here. I mean. Hey, you know, put a seven mil wetsuit on and get in 50 degree water that's super murky and go try to get abalone. It's one of those things of, I think people just think everything's easy. Yeah. You know, you just go, oh, you just go out there and go whaling or, oh, you just go out there and shoot the rigs up or go get abalone or whatever it is. And it's just like, that. there's a lot of effort put into it. It's, it'd be impossible to do. And it some, and in many ways it would sort of subvert democracy and it would subvert the North American model of wildlife conservation. But if I was emperor of the world, or even just emperor of the country, I would enact a system when it came to wildlife management issues and they got into the public comment period, I would send out legions of people to go assign value systems to opinions. And you do an interview process. And my surveyors would go to every American who said, like, I have, I have, I have something to say. I have something to say. You'd raise your hand. I'd send one of my research to, researchers to your home. And they would interview you. And they would assess your education on the issue. They would assess what you had at stake. This is horribly un-American. It is, but it'd be the Sounds new America. Costly. It'd be the new America. But I would find a way to pay for He's it. The emperor. I'd pay for it by yeah. uh, by. Um, Isn't that the president? I don't know. I'd up fishing licenses. I don't know what the hell I'd do. I'd, I'd figure out some way. I'd like steal it from other shit that I don't care about that much. So I would. Uh, they do an interview with you, like. What is your knowledge, actual knowledge of the issue, based on some like empiric, like based on like empirical data? What do you understand, and where does your understanding align with sort of an objective reality as determined by like an impartial group? And then like what do you, what's at stake for you? And then I would rank 
the importance of your input on a sliding scale of one to 10. And it'd be like the bonus point system and tag allocations. If you were a 10, your vote counted by 10. If you were a one, your vote counted once. Then I'd do all that shit. It'd be a way better program. Yeah, things would be a lot better. Way better. Very un-American. Hey, you know when you take uh, some time to clean out, uh, let's say, like clean out your garage, and you're like, man, how was I living like that with that place such a mess? Well, check this out. If you've been paying a fortune for wireless, and then you switch over to Mint Mobile and get plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you'll be saying, how was I ever affording to do that way I did it before? It's time to switch, okay, to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and get your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater, and you will cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Again, mintmobile.com slash meat eater. It's a $45 upfront payment required, which is the equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season... It was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free 
and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Here's two more things that sort of fit. This is all well themed. You know, Corinne puts all this, like, figure. we always have a lot of stuff we want to talk about. Corinne puts it together. Yeah, she does a she good, did a good job. job putting it together. Um, I have observed, and it's been observed by many people, that the, that the Pittman-Robertson Act, like we, which we talk about every episode in some capacity or another, has become like this over-observed thing. Um, and it is all the money that ammo buyers and gun buyers, all the money that they put into conservation. And usually some of the groups, uh, some of the firearm groups and ammo manufacturers who are hit by Pittman-Robertson are most eager to let the public know about what their contributions have been. Federal ammunition every year will release what public expenditures on federal ammunition has pumped into Pittman-Robertson, which is an excise tax on sporting goods equipment. There's a parallel program in fishing called Dingle Johnson, so it's like marine fuel, trolling motors, all kinds of fishing tackle has an excise tax attached to it. It's been around, Pippin-Robertson's been around since 1937, and it was put into effect because hunters and gun owners asked for it to recover American wildlife. And now Pippin-Robertson kicks out, you know, like a billion bucks a year for access, disease research, wildlife management, and it all goes as matching funds. So all the guns and ammo you buy, and you could be like an anti-hunter in New Jersey who buys a pocket pistol. You just paid into Pittman-Robertson. Funds. And it's dished out through uh, matching grants. So for a state to get Pittman-Robertson fund, they have to kick in their own money. They get that money by selling hunting and fishing licenses. Okay, so they want to do a thing. They want to do you know, an access program. They want to do a research program. They want to put in water tanks to improve wildlife habitat in the desert, whatever. They're like, we got 200 grand for this project. We'd like to get 200 grand of Pittman-Robertson money. And they look at everything. It lines up with mission, and bam, they give them the money. It's a wonderful program. Well, not if you ask Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde and his 53 co-sponsors who want to repeal, so Republican from Georgia, he wants to repeal Pittman-Robertson. He's got an interesting argument that I, that I dig the argument, but I just don't like the whole thing. And I'll, I'll talk about why both. The interesting argument is that he's saying you can't tax a, uh, you shouldn't be able to tax a constitutional right. And he thinks it's like an inf- that Pittman-Robertson is an infringement on constitutional rights. Where he's coming from is that there are right now people trying to fight gun ownership and fight Second Amendment rights with these sort of like retribution taxes against gun owners, okay? So a Democrat from Virginia, Don Beyer, congressman from Virginia, he's introducing this bill that would put a 1,000% tax, a 1,000% tax on semi-automatic weapons, okay? 
Um, and also, like, anything beyond rimfire ammo would be under these huge taxes, all right? So in trying to fight that, they're like, well, let's just overturn the whole program and get rid of Pittman-Roberts, which has been around since 1937. That bill is so, I think Pittman Robertson is so perfect and does so much good and has been around so long. I don't think you should go back in time and attack old shit as a way of attacking new shit that's coming from a very different perspective. Remember, it was the, it was the hunters that wanted Pittman Robertson. And Pittman Robertson has been serving hunters for that long. Now, again, hunters aren't synonymous with gun owners. In fact, most gun owners aren't hunters. But look ahead. I don't think you should look past on this, man. It also starts to mess with Dingle Johnson. So, for instance, like electric outboard motors would reduce excise taxes on those from 10% to 3%. There's no constitutional right to have a trolling motor. So you pay excise tax on all your spearfishing gear. Sure. It's the same thing. To support fisheries. Yep. An old program that, that came from the good guys. It didn't come from the bad guys. I get the argument, but I just think it's like, it's just, I think it's like, and he knows it won't pass. It's almost like we're like giving it the, we're sort of falling into the trap by talking about it because there's no way it's going to pass. But it's like, it's politicking. It's politicking. It's like bringing things up for discussion. I think it's a bad idea to go through with this. Last one I want to get into before we start talking about something else. Um, nope, two more things. But they both have to do with fisheries, sort of. There's all these news stories out right now about how I even I read it in the Wall Street Journal where this guy's all fed up like, oh my God, now bees are fish. California now says bees are fish. Where, happen, where will the chaos end? What's next? And it, 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 here's what happened in California. I'm sure you've seen headlines. If you're, if you're a news reader in the morning, I'm sure you see red line, headlines like, my God, Californians, so stupid. Now they're saying bumblebees are fish. Well, when they, okay, it's actually an, an interesting thing. When California built like, like it's California Endangered Species Act, they put in place like what, could be covered under the Endangered Species Act. And they, the, the California Endangered Species Act expressly protects birds, mammals, fish, amphibians, reptiles, and plants. The California Endangered Species Act does not define fish. However, this is where it starts to get rich. However, the law, the California Endangered Species Act law, is part of the California Fish and Game Code. So people reading the law went in to see, like, when they say fish, what do they mean? Well, we have to go one step deeper and go, since it's part of California's Fish and Game Code, what does California's Fish and Game Code mean by fish? If you go into the fish and game code, here's what they mean by fish. They take fish to mean any mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, or amphibian. Now that definition, mollusks, crustaceans, invertebrates, amphibians, 
doesn't specify whether they're talking about terrestrial or aquatic. Some people are saying that defi the definition of what they mean would definitely include bees, bumblebees, because bumblebees are invertebrates. Other people are like, but dude, they were talking about shit in the water, man. They were talking about fish. They weren't talking about that. It's like clearly they meant shit in the water like fish, but it would be shellfish, whatever. Snails, shit in the water. There are people are like, no, it says uh, any mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, or amphibian. Therefore, under that fish thing, we have the ability to say that bumblebees are endangered. So what does that mean? Does that mean you can't swat a bee or else you'll get a ticket? No, what it means is they're... <laughs> There is a, like, however they're going about it, here's what they're after. There is a pollinator crisis. Yeah, I okay? know that. No one in their right mind, no one, like, what do they want to do? What if you want to do something about it or not? Just like, no one in their right mind can tell you the planet is not getting warmer every year. Whether you're going to do, how you define who's to blame for that is up for debate. What you're going to do about it is up for debate, but you cannot argue you cannot argue that the planet isn't getting warmer every year, right? It's just, you can't argue it anymore. Like you can say that I don't give a shit, or you can say that it's not my fault, but you can't say it's not happening. And no one, no one does anymore. No one's like, it's getting colder. Pollinators are vanishing at an astonishing, alarming rate. That's just, it's just fucking true. Like, I don't give a shit if you want to do anything about it or who you want to blame, but that is happening. They are, I shouldn't say alarming because that's a value judgment. Pollinators are declining. Bumblebees are declining. If you care or not, I, I don't know, but it, that's an, it's an objective reality. So they're trying to find a way to do it. Who's pissed about it? Agricultural producers because of insecticides. Insecticide application. That's why they're duking it out. So when you see a headline, Californians think, bees or fish good lord <laughs> that's what that's about since we got a couple californians here you guys got any comments <laughs> it's just a little no more comment. complicated it's a little more complicated, little complicated. i, I, ignore, more I ignored complicated. it when it, when i heard about it i was like yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> they've been kicking around the courts it'll get appealed again i'm sure but currently it stands not that bees are fish, but that bees are covered as a thing that can be listed. Right now, as it stands, in California, bumblebees can be listed. So are they saying just bumblebees or bees in general? Well, right now they're worried about seven species of bumblebee. A bumblebee. Do you guys know the honeybees are not native to North America? <laughs> European? Yeah. Did not know that. Do you know nightcrawlers aren't native? When you're way ass up in the mountains and you're in a little meadow and you dig down, there's a nightcrawler sitting there. That some bitch is not native. <laughs> Where are they from? Eurasia. Really? Yeah. Night Canadian crawlers, not Canadian. Huh? Not wild. What about the red wiggler? That I don't know about. I have a feeling, and then we will be corrected by a thousand million people. I have a feeling <laughs> that the red wiggler is a non-native invertebrate. Would love to know. We'll find out. I bet you some uh, some sly uh, telephone user right in our presence would be able to figure out if red wigglers are native or not. 
One last thing, and this is bringing us closer in. You'll see that we're narrowing in on what uh, we're narrowing our focus. Uh, Brandon, tell us what we witnessed yesterday by the pogey boats. Yesterday. Two days ago, whatever the hell it was. Two we were watching a bunch of commercial. Uh, what's a pogey? Oh, the pogies. Uh, Those guys the, were working. The Menhaden. The Menhaden fishery. It's a big thing here. Yep. The uh, Persane. Uh, yeah. The Menhaden. Would, would it be fair to call it like it's an industrial operation? Absolutely. Like the industrial harvest of Menhaden, which they hear about's called pogies. Pogies. Yeah. What is it? Three inch? A three inch? Uh, they get up to about five, six inches at full size. With the dots on them? Yep. Yes. Yeah, they have a dot. Uh, up towards the sh- front shoulder. Hunt and fishing type people would look at it and be like, a bait fish. Yep. Yep. Right? It's one of our most common bait fish here. But they use them for, uh, they press them for oil, for fish oil. Yep. Fish food. They, all sorts of, you know, a lot of products. That fish are food, made pet out of food. Yep. Yeah. They, they process it. It's not, you, you don't go down to the fish store. You don't go down to the, you don't go down to the Whole Foods fish counter and <laughs> get a couple pogies. Buy some pogies. <laughs> but pogey sandwich. You, you probably have gotten them in products that you've purchased absolutely uh we had a guy right in so we re, we do this thing every year with with uh every year a couple times a year we do like a state of the union on conservation issues with Whit fosberg who's the ceo and president of the theodore roosevelt conservation partnership of which i am a board member on a recent state of the union episode we spent quite a bit of time talking about the striped bass fishery all up and down the eastern seaboard of the U.S. And I know that you guys, and just to bring it home for you Californians, you guys have a striped bass fishery as well, but that's a non-native population of striped bass. And, and in fact, a lot of people like to see those go away, and they'd like to see the ones where they're supposed to be do better. Oh, striped bass? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a huge debate. Yeah. So it's a, it's a non-native, it's like a deleterious exotic in some areas, but in, in on the eastern seaboard of our beloved country, it's it's the primary fish. It's the primary targeted sport fish in terms of like man hours spent. Striped bass dominates eastern fishing, saltwater fishing. Uh, Wit talked a lot about why striped bass populations are just not doing great and why they're in decline. And a guy wrote in saying, "How could he have dared?" place responsibility for that decline on the shoulders of recreational anglers. He points out how I express a level of skepticism that how could it be recreational anglers impacting that industry, impacting that fishery. And he said he was aghast, almost fell off his seat that Witt didn't talk about the commercial Menhaden harvest as being largely responsible for declines in striped bass. Not only that, but cobia, red drum, sea trout, many other species. We put it to Wit, and uh, Wit thanked, for, thanked us for forwarding the comment along. And he goes on to say, the listener is correct that Menhaden, the Menhaden harvest definitely impacts striped stripe bass populations. He says, the current harvest in the Atlantic depresses striped bass populations by about 30%, meaning if it was not, they estimate, that if it was not for the commercial Menhaden fishery, striped bass populations would probably sit about 30% higher than they are right now, which is real significant. But he goes on to say, 6 million fish, 
So the last year that we have full data is pretty old. This gets into an interesting thing around fisheries. We have solid data on 2018. Okay, full data on 2018. In 2018, 6 million fish were killed between the recreational and commercial fisheries. Guess how many were caught by sport anglers? This is astounding. 5 million. There's not many fisheries like that. 6 million are killed, 5 million are killed by sport fishers. That's in the United States? Eastern Seaboard. Yeah, East. Eastern Seaboard. You know, are we talking about specifically to striped bass or? Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying like, like normally, like normally, there's not even close to parity between commercial yeah. and recreational fisheries in saltwater. Meaning, yeah. you go look at like, what's the sport catch on said species, and what's the commercial catch on said species? The commercial catch far outweighs the sport catch. Like if you go you, look at like salmon, right? Commercial. If you, if you believe the data. If you believe the data. I, you know, some of the data we see here in the Gulf, it's a, I don't, I don't even believe it. Oh, really? Yeah. I think the numbers are skewed. Meaning it's more, meaning it's high. You think the recreational has a higher impact? No, I think the commercial sector has a higher impact than what they lead us to believe. Oh, than what is even put out there. Than what they tell us. Yeah. Maybe that's the case here. But this is what people are looking at the numbers are saying that like recreational fishermen are hitting it bad. Now, what Wit goes on to clarify is that TRCP and many others are very interested in trying to curtail uh, the Menhaden fishery. Right now, it's man. It w- it was managed in, like in the Gulf, for instance. Right now, they don't have good management in place in the Gulf of Mexico. It's managed by how many they can they take without totally collapsing the fishery. And it's not looked at how many can they take without having major impacts on other fish species. And they just need to re. They need to rethink the fishery altogether. He says, Witt goes on to say, they need to shift to an ecosystem management. Well, the current harvest in the Atlantic depresses striped bass populations by about 30%, although we have had significant wins in recent years to reduce the allowable catch of Manhattan. The Atlantic does have a catch limit for Manhattan. The Gulf of Mexico does not have a catch limit. And he says what we need to do is shift to ecosystem management, meaning that catch limits are now being set based on what the ecosystem needs and not just how many menhaden can you kill before you crash the stock. We're also now trying to reduce or ideally eliminate the harvest of menhaden in the Chesapeake Bay, which is the nursery area for juvenile menhaden and striped bass. That's been a big subject here uh, in Louisiana over the last couple of years. Um, it came up under to, to vote here about a year ago, and it's trying to not, not eliminate the the fishery because we know that that's that's not not possible, but try to extend the boundary of how close they are allowed to come to our to our land, which basically is our estuary, yep. because it is affecting our our trout and our redfish and everything else. We saw a dead shark. Yeah, we did. Was I think one of you guys said most likely the cause of those saners? It was right, right by where those saners were at. They pump out a lot of bycatch. Yeah. Uh, Most most of these fish that they get caught in there do not survive. So it's a big problem. Um, You know, there's a lot of people out there fighting for to improve it, and we just have to hope for the best that that will change because it definitely affects the fisher here. Wit goes on to conclude that 
Every credible study shows that striped bass are overfished and that overfishing is still occurring. He says, recreational as recreational anglers, I'll point out that Witt is an avid striped bass fisherman, we have no choice but to put in strong conservation measures to ensure that we end overfishing and allow stocks to rebuild. Are there any environmental issues that they attribute to the population? I mean, like in California, right, we're, we're, we're fighting about salmon versus striper versus water temps of the rivers sure. and saltwater intrusion into the delta and loss of the delta. So yeah. a lot of you can kind of pinpoint California stripe populations by environmental changes. I think like everything, probably, probably some. Like some. everything is like a death by a thousand cuts, yeah. right? I mean, with every imperiled fishery, whatever, you can look and, and go numb I think you can go numb by like how many things are right. contributing, right? Like does warmer water matter? Um, damming, irrigation. I mean, damming destroyed striped bass runs in many rivers, right? So like right. damming, irrigation, um, water quality. And then you can sort of be like, Ugh, screw it, let's not do anything. Or you can look at like major contributors and try to attack the problem in some way that makes sense and maybe attack the problem across a wide variety of things. I can tell you that Witt with TRCP is anything but an anti-striped bass fisherman. Dude's an avid striped bass fisherman. Um, all he's calling for is like, they're, they're working their asses on the Manhattan issue, which is a thing. And also that they, he, whoever, people that are doing that need to think about their catch in a way that's pretty common for fishermen to do. Give me guys theory on sharks. I'm not talking about how many sharks are around. We go but let me put, we're jumping. That goes back to your, your talk about the whaling and how. No, I didn't, even, I didn't even mean shark management. I just meant like dealing with sharks in the water. Oh. So yesterday, real quick, I look, I hear a couple yells. Couple. <laughs> well, we we heard a couple. I've never yelled at yeah. that before. I heard it, Screams. and I was in the water, <laughs> like and, uh, a quarter mile away. Yeah, your ears are a lot better than mine. I couldn't hear all that hooting and hollering. Anyways, <laughs> once we heard you guys, we got over as quick as there was people in the water. After your photo shoot. And well, there was a lot going on. <laughs> there was a, there was a lot going on. So... But what I do see, recall, I look... Can I set the I scene look, a little bit? Can I set the scene a little bit? I'm, I'm trying or to set, set the scene. No, you left off all the parts about everything. No, I'm getting there. You're I was, going out of order? No. You're like, you're like Quentin Tarantino so, all of a sudden? <laughs> well, this is getting Start interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's like watching Pulp like, Fiction. <laughs> all right, so on, keep telling the story. Uh, these guys are diving <laughs> in a sweet spot. I had just shot a fish. You left out they're, a part. Oh, you left out a part. You left out a part. Okay, what part? So we have two we have two rigs, two rigs side by side, only about fifty yards apart. And so we put two divers on each rig. Way more than fifty. Maybe seventy five. Let me set the scene. Okay. Then you can you pick go up. For it. Then Chester can pick up. <laughs> you go for it. When rig di okay, I am gonna give me a minute. I'm gonna go back to the seventies. <laughs> in the nineteen seventies, <laughs> they right, started building big part. ass oil rigs out yeah, in the Gulf of Mexico. These oil rigs are fish magnets. They are man-made reefs. And you want to talk about objective realities? These rigs create life and create and enhance the fishery. Normally, when you're fishing, when you're diving a rig, you dive a rig, right? We're going to go dive this rig. 
and you go to the rig, and everybody that's going to fish jumps in and dives the rig. Then you go to another rig. But it just so happened that our captain, hey, do you know the difference between the captain and the skipper is? No. The skipper owns the boat. Okay. Our skipper, Brandon, <laughs> took us to a spot where we're going to dive two rigs at once because they're so close together that the boat could tend to both people. That was an anomaly. Well, it's that not I think uncommon. Is it's not n- uncommon, but that on was this an, trip. It was an it was anomaly, anomaly to have two right next to each other. They're normally like spaced far apart. Correct. So we we did that, and not just not and, and like a couple people in the water, like groups of twos, right? Yeah. Separated by a hundred yards. Go ahead, Chester. Well, I'll let these guys go, and then I'll end it, <laughs> so I don't miss anything. The Oreo. This, so, this, is, the coming, Oreo. this is coming so, down. Oh, yeah. No, someone's got to explain so, the Oreo, and then we'll get into the sharks. Okay. Double stuffed. Yeah, so this is an area where we got, we call it the Oreo. We got dirty water on top. There's a clean layer down uh, underneath the dirty water. It warrants an explanation of dirty water. And Dirty water meaning, like, less than one foot of visibility. Yeah. I can't, you can't see I the can't, end of your gun. You cannot, you know, you can't... Or, you can't, see your, you can't see your hand in front of you. I you can't, can't even see, see my stuff. camera. Yeah, you in front can't of see my the eyes. camera. Yeah. If someone's breathing up next to you, you might be touching shoulders with them, but only be able to see their hand. Yes. <laughs> Was and, that you that hit me? And that <laughs> surface layer of dirty water might be uh, five feet. It might be sixty feet. You don't know until you drop through it. So. That this area that's the, we, that's the top cookie. The top, top wafer. The, the top wafer was about five to ten feet at this spot. The and, frosting. And then it got pretty clean underneath there down to about 50, 55 feet. And then it got dark again. So this is the kind of the area we're diving. Um, and they say sometimes there's single, there's traditional, there's and the sometimes there's double traditional stuff. Traditional and double stuff. Double yeah. stuff Oreo is a nice <laughs> this, big band of clarity. This was a double stuffed Oreo we were dealing with yesterday at that spot. We were looking for mangrove snappers. And... Uh, Greg had Greg had been on this rig, and uh, had had got himself a nice nice mangrove. And we were having a hell of a time over on our rig. Huge huge school of mangroves. I had been staying on the boat prior to that, let letting these guys get a couple of a uh, couple fish, and then Greg got back in the boat and he's like, "Hey, you want to get in?" I'm like, oh, "Sure, why not?" I well, thought you said you wanted to get in. Yeah, Greg Greg failed to tell me he'd also uh, <laughs> shot one that had gotten away. Yeah, I ripped off one and then ch- landed one. Yeah, he sort of chummed the waters per se. So uh, Mike and I jumped in. Uh, I did a little test dive to check it out on the first dive. Everything looked good. Lots of fish around. And second dive uh, went down and uh, found found a nice mangrove. Mike's following me. He's right above me. And uh, pulled the trigger. And uh, I'm fighting this fish, getting it out of the rig. And all of a sudden, from the lower wafer, the dark side, here comes the bull sharks. Two, two very grown bulls. Which would be nine, nine footers? Probably eight, nine foot, pushing 350 to 400 pounds. And that's piece. a big one. Those are big ones. And they were not happy, you know, acting very erratic. Um, so then as we come... As we're, I'm fighting the fish, not not letting them get to the fish, um, but then we get back up into the uh, the top wafer where we can't see anything. 
and uh, so that's where it gets a little scary. And what I see, what I we hear some yelling. We look over, and I see two men, <laughs> and they look like wet coons treed. <laughs> With an arm waving. Screaming. Hanging on yeah. to the oil rig. We're, we're hollering. We're hollering for the boat to come over because we want to, we'd like to get out of the water at that point. <laughs> I've got a, fl- a, a bleeding fl- uh, fish. Brandon is up the ladder of the rig. He I left am, you. He left you behind. I am just in the water with my camera because I can't climb up the, the ladder <laughs> with my rig. Screaming for you guys. And, and there was a little delay. I think there was a photo shoot going on on the other uh, There definitely was. Other rig. not happen. We watched you guys. No. We wa- I watched. That's not what was happening. <laughs> you guys were letting drivers into the water as we were yelling. There's a lot going on at once. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, we were successfully recovered. But uh, it was a pucker factory of uh, 9.9. <laughs> That's one of the things that most surprised me about uh, this, this whole thing of, of uh, being in salt water with sharks is that it's not the presence of sharks that matters, but it's the demeanor of them. Absolutely. Which is, which is like very true of grizzly. I'm totally used to that with grizzly bears. Yeah. They're sort of like, oh, that's a grizzly bear minding its own business. Yeah. Doesn't matter. That's a grizzly bear that's scared. I mean, we dove the, we dove the shrimp boats the days before and dealt with hundreds and hundreds of sharks, and nobody went crawling back into the boat. It takes a lot to spook me. No, <laughs> like, like, but and that was a no. When, when they act like that, that's another story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, we were on the on the shrimp boats, and we were getting within, I had a, you know, a couple bull sharks come within, you know, a foot or two of me, and it's just one of those things of you, they're not aggressive, though. They're just being inquisitive, and, and I don't recommend, you know, we spend a lot of time with these things. So, I mean, if you dump me in the woods, I would have no clue how to read a grizzly bear. Mm-hmm. But I have spent so much time in the water with a lot of different types of sharks that I have a, a pretty good idea what's going on with them. Um, and, and for instance, when I got in there, the first day, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And I, when the sharks came in, you, you guys were around me, but I'd start kicking a little more. Yeah. And like, because Yeah, they feed I, off your energy. If you're, and, if you're fidgeting or kicking erratically or creating bubbles and or, they were coming, or slapping. And they were coming to check oh, yeah. me out where you guys are just calm. Yep. And shortly after, you had told me, "Hey, it's time to get out of the water." Yeah, 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 yeah. There was there was one bull that was getting yeah. a bit bit agitated, and you know, it's one thing if you're if you're by yourself or you're with another person that's really experienced with sharks, but uh, yeah, when you have that many people in the water, you gotta just kind of call it safe and not have to worry about it. There was a thing that also reminded me of grizzly bears, which is uh, you and I were swimming back to the boat one time. Yeah. And a and a big bull shark came up behind you. Yep. And I was screaming and yelling to you. Yep. And then he left. Let and me. then he came up behind me. Yeah. And you literally pushed me out of the way and charged him. That's mentoring. Yeah. 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 Was I was mentoring. there for you that time. <laughs> you were there for me. <laughs> no, like, like kind of almost like swam over me and ran at him and he like took off. Yeah, and that's so they Which surprised really, the shit out of me. You know what if they're not in a feeding mode they're you know they're just cruising around looking at stuff and they don't you know see people all that much out here and uh it's one of those things of if you yeah think of it this way if, if you're kicking away from it especially with like carbon fins and a you know a spear gun and all that stuff they're 
You look uh, pretty big. You look pretty big, but they're also like, what the heck are you? So if you're swimming away from them, they're just going to like keep on going, hey, what the heck's swimming away from me? And um, he wasn't being, a, he was he was inquisitive. I wouldn't say he had any aggressive body language. No, but just but, like too close for comfort. And they get to a size where like if they bit you, it'd be a big deal. Oh, bull shark. If a bull shark lays into you, you're in trouble. Yeah. No, those those aren't a shark to, to you know joke around with. So yeah, you got to square up on them. And it's one of those things of last... The last thing you know you can do is a is a bailout is you have a spear gun and you can you can poke it away which will generally get them to kind of go away but sometimes it'll piss them off a little bit but yeah you got you got to square up on them let them know that you got to think you're you know say six feet tall with three foot long fins you're nine feet long you're pretty imposing uh, you just got to kind of not show that you're trying to either flee or you're you're not scared of it mm-hmm. yeah Mike you had a when we were watching the bull shark footage yesterday you had an interesting observation about their caught you said they're cautious oh yeah uh, sharks are I, I think it was i did a guadalupe trip to and did great whites and uh the sharks would never come in close it took them a long time they'd swim around they'd swim under and they'd watch us look this way and then they sneak in because if they get hurt they're gonna die mm-hmm. so if a shark has an opportunity and it thinks that it's good, it's going to take it. But otherwise I feel like they're, they're pretty cautious and calculated. Yeah. It's an interesting observation. Like if he gets messed up, he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. They can't afford to, they can't afford (laughs) to lose an eye or or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're not looking to be dumb. Yep. Yeah. And they're old. I mean, big ones are old. Yep. Yeah. They're bit, they've been around. Yeah. They don't, they got that way by not making dumb mistakes. What's an old shark? Depends on species. Yeah. I don't know the lifespan of a bull shark. Yeah. Yeah. Great whites are pretty long lived. Well, yeah. some of the green, like Greenland sharks and stuff like that, they're extremely old. I think a great white can be like thirty years old ish, yeah. something like that. Do that research. Oh, just to catch up, the red wiggler is native to Europe. How about that? Oh, yeah. So I'm just looking here real quick. Uh, according to the Chesapeake Bay Program, haven't heard of them before. Fourteen years for a bull shark is average. Life expectancy. Life expectancy. That seems actually short. They, they can live to be at least 14 years old. They grow awful fast then. Yeah. Now, the oldest, so the oldest known bull shark, 32. Average of 16 years in the wild. It seems like a lot of things in the ocean, lifespan is about 30 years. Bigger animals. Chester. Doesn't look good for your ass. <laughs> That's the life expectancy of things in the ocean. I know why sea bass is a 30 year lifespan, too. I got two more years. What are the. Um, <laughs> Stay out of what, the water. What are, the ki- what are all the kind of sharks you see in this, in this environment? And like, like, look, Brandon, how would you describe, like, like, sort of like ecosystem wise, you would say we're, I mean, we're in the Gulf, we're at the mouth of the Mississippi, but in the salt water. As far as what what type of sharks that we have here? Yeah, like no, like where where would you say we're at, right, on a planetary sense? Louisiana. No, I know. Yeah, I mean, start, right. start out like a, geopolitical, dude. <laughs> I'm not talking about geopolitical. Mississippi River Delta. Yeah, you start like yeah. a, you start into a delta that turns into a full on ocean, right? So yeah. yeah the and, then you, River. and then you motor out how many miles and you hit the ledge? Well, here around Venice, we're as close to the continental shelf as you can get in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what makes our fishery, well, that and the, and the River Delta so special. We're, our proximity to close, or to deep water 
into the the loop current. So um, we have shelf rigs, and we've got all our nearshore rigs that are being fed by the by the delta. So you got a lot of nutrients coming out, a lot of bait, which feeds the the, the fishery. And then proximity to that thousand foot. And then your proximity and your very close proximity to that deep 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 water, to that loop current that also then pushes the pelagics and things like that in. Is is there a lot of like natural reefs or is it a lot of mud because of the delta and and stuff coming in? We have very little natural reef here. We have a, 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 some more more to the west, but um, mostly mud, and then we've got the oil rigs. So the oil rigs have are man-made reefs, basically. I want to get into that. Do you want to get into that now? Sure. There are, in the Gulf, some estimate of 5,000 oil rigs. I don't know for sure on the number, but that's what, that sounds, that's that sounds feasible. That's what our research turned yeah. up. Um, I'm sure someone could tell you down to the down to the down to brass tacks, but at some point, I'm sure that was was accurate. So around five thousand, they're uh, they became very popular. Like how, however one felt about offshore oil extraction in the Gulf and fossil fuels and all that, you can't get around one fact: is that the rigs created a lot of sea life, accessible sea life, accessible fisheries congregated around the rigs. So as rigs are brought, as these, all these 5,000 rigs are being brought offline, taken out of production, as they've moved operations or whatever the hell, there's been a big question of what to do with all these things. And they're enormously popular with fishermen. Um, at a time, they had the Rigs to Reef program. Correct. That came about in the 80s. And they, they've done a bunch of things with rigs. So I'm going to try to, just based on my understanding from talking to you guys and others and reading, um, they toyed with like trying to make them not a navigational hazard. So cutting them off, what, 50 feet down, 60 feet down? I think it varies, yeah. a little deeper than that, typically. I think about 75 feet is about the 75, 80 is about as below the water level. So that the biggest or vessel even, could... Or even deeper. Even deeper. So the and, biggest vessel could pass over... Correct. And not tag the top of the reef. So it's out of the way of shipping. Correct. But it's down there providing fish habitat. They've also messed with just... Uh, many, they can just tip over. It's in deep enough water where you tip the whole thing over at its base. And they would dynamite them. And that created a lot of controversy because that kills every damn thing on the rig. Yeah, they'd have these huge just miles of fish just floating, which was... Rather than cutting them off at the base, they would dynamite the bases and pull them over. That, was, would, that was something of the past. They, they, they've gotten rid of that. The blasting. Yeah. And now they cut them off. Uh, they, they shear them off, cut them off, whatever. And then during the Obama administration, they started the Idle Iron. Idle Iron Act which was a push to just altogether wholesale remove them. And as your deckhand put it, when they're done, there's not even a beer can. Yep, return to natural state. On the bottom. Correct. They, it's they even all run. hauled to shore. They'll, they'll run a, like a heavy-duty trawl over the area when they're done removing it to make sure they got rid of absolutely everything. 
even subsurface. They cut it off subsurface. All the way to the mud. Yep. If not below. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors. Big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Like, figure it out. That means figure it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like, you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. And I think last year alone, they removed like a couple hundred rigs out of the Gulf. I think uh, I heard... 
our friend Ronnie, and uh, he's got a good friend who works in that in that business of actually removing these. He said they were scheduled to take out another 150 this year. Yeah, I've heard now 150 to 200 a year. There's boats out yep. plying the waters called rig reapers. Yep, yep. and they've been doing rig that. destroyers. They've been doing that. They've been doing that in Texas for years. Texas, the landscape of the fishery has completely changed. They don't have many rigs over there anymore. Yeah, and, and you'll pull up on. I, I, we pulled up on rigs that you had on your GPS to find that it was gone. It was like that scene in Star Wars, and they go to that planet that ain't there anymore. Yeah. Remember that? Because the Death Star had like blown it up. Yeah. They get there, and they're like, it's gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, oh, and, and it happens fast. It happens fast. I would be like, I was fishing here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. This is not there back. anymore. I'm like, it's gone. That's wild. Yeah. Just to put it into perspective, too, on the life around these, which I was so surprised at, when I was, I didn't have gloves on one day. And you can swim up to these and hang on to them and kind of rest. And I had my hand on these barnacles, which are like... Heavy-duty barnacles. Yeah. They're big. big. Anywhere from a, a penny to like a big silver dollar kind of size, maybe a lot of them. Um, and they have holes inside of them. And I had my hands on there and I was like, God. I was like, what the heck's going on? Was there a crab inside of one of them? I was getting bit fish. by little fish. Everything you put your hand yeah. on is and alive. Justin has a video where you can see like five of these little fish just sitting in those holes. So it's cool to put it into perspective. You can see the anywhere from the smallest little microorganisms, then you know, it gets these small little fish, attracts bigger fish to eat those fish, and it's just all the way up to bull sharks and Goliath grouper, it's just this whole ecosystem. It's each, pretty each one sweet. is a reef from the tiniest organism to the biggest. It's it's its own ecosystem. And Every presence of, of presence of sharks is a healthy ecosystem. Yep. Yep. Yeah. They're very healthy. I mean if you if you were to see and you could go to a lot of places in the world and not see the life that's on these things. It's a very, very healthy ecosystem. Um, and when they remove them, it's completely gone. But what is what is the main argument? Do you guys know of why they want these out just to return it to a natural looking state? Um, I I don't think you're gonna get a no. clear. Answer. I don't. I don't think, I think you're gonna get a clear answer. I think there's theories, a lot. I think there's a lot of theories. I think there's a lot of money behind it. Mm -hmm. I think there's a whole industry uh, being fed by making millions off of uh, removing these and the scrap value. There's no way the scrap value pays for pulling those things out of the water. The, but the, co the cost to pull them, they're also getting paid to pull them out of the water. Oh, yeah. The industry there, of recycling them. There was uh, Lena, which was one of our very, it was a deeper water rig. It was about 1,000 feet of water. It was removed a year and a half ago, two years ago. Yeah, I dove it right before they removed and it. And I believe that the numbers I saw, that the cost to remove it was $2 billion to remove it. And that only, they just took the top deck off and then they cut it at the base and teetered it over in a thousand feet of water. Two billion. So there is some, there's some serious money involved. Yeah, but I don't, but the people tasked with removing them are not driving the policy. I don't, like, I'm pro-rig. I think they should be left as habitat. I do too. And I'd put it like, like I said, I told you my, oh, I'll share with, there, I'll share again my, my, my solution. 
cut off whatever number, 50% of them, 75% of them, but then put them all in a pile somewhere else. So put cut three off and pile them on top of every fourth. Make a reef. There's this, this subject's been mind revisited, <laughs> revisited over. I mean, when, when this started happening, um, and there was a lot of people that were very passionate about fighting against it because, you know, as you lose a rig that you've been diving for X amount of years and then it's gone and you know how much life's on that rig. And I think a lot of people would, would agree if, if some of like, you know, the environmental groups or, you know, you know, people that are passionate about conserving nature were to drive any of these things, they would go, why are we removing these things? But obviously there's, there's something bigger at, at hand here. I mean, it's not like the, the, the divers that dive them are just passive about them being removed. Yeah. There's, there's been a lot of fighting and research and um, it's not like they didn't try to put up resistance. Oh yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. seem like I'm underplaying like right. anyone's, no, anyone's stake in the game or like how, how it's been approached. I, but I, but I, if I had to get in the mind of um, like, like get in the mind of the other side of it, it would be that this sort of, ideal and like this idea in certain political circles that sort of like like that that mining drilling infrastructure is bad and that when you come in and do an operation like a, a, a coal mine oil drilling whatever it is that in the end you um you do your remediation right right you bring it back as close as you can to what it was before you did it and that is driving sort of like the reduction of this. Then you probably have also like people can probably make a case that it's like human health hazard because as they decay, they could fall over, a boat could hit them. So they got that and they're weighing that. And um, obstructions on the bottom of the ocean for current uses and later yep. uses. And so like, and that's driving the conversation and that, people who are looking to the fishery are being undervalued or their, their input isn't being listened to. Yeah. And, I mean, there's definitely these there's, other considerations. There's definitely a lot of things at play. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you got to, you're looking at the, the oil industry, right? I mean, that is a massive animal and it's one of those things of, you know, you could be passionate about a recreational activity, but I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, you're not going to have the funds. Well, it's, it's a lot more than a recreational yeah. activity. I mean, you're talking about an entire fishery. Well, it's here. an industry down it's here. An in, I mean, it's an industry. As far as sport fishing goes. Sport but. sport fishing, uh, charter fishing, the recreational side, the commercial fishery. You know, you remove all of these out of here, then it's going to completely change th that whole industry. Yeah. Across the board. I, I, it's a little bit like an un unintended consequences thing. Yeah, um, is, is, you know, I don't think anyone probably maybe maybe, I, I, maybe some biologists did maybe some biologists when they were putting all that stuff in maybe some biologists is like someday this is going to be a fish mecca because of all of the reef habitat you're creating a lot of the remediation you're talking about maybe when it comes to like coal mines and things like that uh, this is different because the what has resulted has been what has been left from it is a positive they've created something positive by building these they created a, a new ecosystem that, that is wonderful. That's different than like drilling a coal mine and then just leaving it as yeah. is. This is a positive. Yes, there is a navigational hazard. Are there ways that we could could go about uh, fixing that 
and yet still maintaining that ecosystem. Well, I think electronics is taking care of that problem for you. I would think so. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, everything's on the map. Every, you know, we run radar. Everybody's got eyeballs. The, the type of ships that they're worried about hitting these things have the electronics and the technology to avoid them. And there's and giant horns on all these rigs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, um, no, it's, it's, trust me, it's the, the fight has been going on for a long time. It's just not gaining traction. How, they're putting new rigs in? Because, not really. Really? The, so we, the, only ones I, the only ones I see going in are deep the water. Floater, the floater rigs out yeah, there. Yeah, you got some deep water ones that are drilling new wells out there. Because those drill ships, that we were near are just basically idle. Those are right sitting. Now? Those are sitting idle right now. Those are waiting to be deployed. Huh. So the drill ships that are active are out in three, four, five thousand feet of water right now, drilling new new wells. And the big thing with these rigs is that, and you saw it. Not every rig is as good as you know. There are some rigs that have been removed that were, uh, I mean, Alina. I was lucky enough to dive Alina, and it was this massive structure that was absolutely amazing um, it was right there on the shelf it yeah. had coral tropical fish yeah. it had everything on it yeah. it was it was amazing yeah um yeah i was lucky enough i did my friend joe wegman took me on a deep scuba dive there just to see you know as a free diver you touch the the surface of it and then when you do like a deep scuba dive on these things it's it's just amazing. I mean, the 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 size of the amberjack and the size of the red snapper and everything. It's just, I mean, it's from top to bottom life. And the size of the tiger sharks, from what I heard. Very big tiger sharks. <laughs> Very big tiger sharks. On those big deep water rigs. Yeah. Well, they're they're around, but like on this, the the biggest tiger shark I've ever seen was off of Lena. I mean, it was it was it was like a scene out of Jaws. Of like, just yeah, I did a triple take on it. How, but, so how many feet deep was that one? Uh, it's in the thousand. The the rigs in a thousand, it's yeah. in a thousand feet, and so you're saying if you, it's at a thousand feet, but if yeah. you dive down a couple hundred feet, you're still encountering more and more and more fish down that deep. So I think we did a we did a deep scuba to about two thirty, and it I mean it didn't didn't stop. Really, everything got bigger the deeper you went. I mean this this amberjack had I mean it was just these huge jowls. It's the biggest amberjack I think I've ever seen. It was just a monster. It was just, I mean, it's all, all out of reach for free dive. You're talking but, about like 100 plus? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well over 100. With smaller ones behind it and Red Snapper and um, Grouper. And I mean, that's all. Really? Yeah, it's just amazing. Like you said, if you went somewhere and just did a reef dive that looked like these rigs look, I mean, it would be absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, well, that's why I'd asked Brandon. I'm like, why don't I see more scuba operations around? Because this is like the ultimate place to scuba dive if you want to see fish. And then you brought up the, the liability issue. Yeah. Huge yeah. liability issue. And people, you know, people that are really experienced rig diving dive these rigs and have issues. So yeah. it's one of those things of they well, get, What are the issues you run into scuba diving? Um, you get hung up. Well, one Current. depends on how deep you're diving, but um, a lot of people push it on these rigs and do deep scuba and don't. You know, they get narked out or they don't do proper decompression times. Um, yeah, but why is that peculiar to rig? It's the, sp the, the spearfishing side. Yeah, the spearfishing side. The spearfishing oh, side. Yeah. You're, you're in deep water. You know, you might be scuba diving a, a 400. It might be 400 feet to the to the bottom. Yeah. You can easily lose track of how deep you are. Yep. Got it. And, and the water's so crystal clear, right? You saw some of it. It's just you can keep on going and like, oh, shoot. You know, I'm 
couple hundred feet, you know, 200 yeah. plus feet down. And then which, you got the variability of our water with that, that dirty water on top. You know, this, it doesn't necessarily, uh, attract your, your average recreational scuba diver. And then the, the cross currents are an issue too. I mean, there's people that get blown out of these things, right? There'll be a top current going one way, they'll drop down and then the current will be going the other way. And then, you know, say you're, you shoot a fish or the, some of these currents that we were lucky, these currents were pretty um, calm when we were in there, but they get really going and you'll get blown out of the rig. Yeah. If you're doing a, like a safety stop on the yeah. way up on a scuba and you're, let's say you're off the side of the rig, you could easily yeah. pop up a half a mile away. It's yeah, been, we have, the, we have these free dive uh, and scuba spearfishing rodeos every summer. And it was just a couple of summers ago we had, had a diver lost. Fortunately, was able to be recovered, but it was uh, quite the mission. Like he just came out too far from his boat. Yeah, he. I mean, he came. He was doing a safety stop, and the, that cross current got him. Yeah. So when you're doing these deep scubas, right? If you drop to 200 feet, you have to decompress at a certain point. So say you do a safety stop at 50 feet or 30 feet, and the current is so strong that you get pushed off the out of the rig into the open water. Well, yep. you have two choices: either surface and get narked. You know, you have to go into the decompression chamber. Um, or you, you know, continue on your safety stop and then pop up, which and, can be a long ways away. And the surface, so the boat, the, the current at the surface may be different than what it was down at where that, where that diver was at. So the boat's going to be looking yeah, down, down current, thinking that the diver's over here. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not. He actually went that way. So that does create, that creates a whole other hazard. Got it. The other is, it, ha- is it hard to hang out on the surface with those tanks? I guess you ditch the tank. Oh, no, like if you, you get blown out? You, you wouldn't you wouldn't ditch no. the tank. You'd blow your BC up. Oh, I see. And yeah. you just you could float. But but you're just bobbing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> who knows? It's gonna be you're you're pretty small out there in a big big ocean. Yeah, yeah. The other danger that I was uh never used to was having to ascend with my hand above my head because the water seems so clear, it's just like you can reference where you are, you can look up, but then that whole murky layer, oh, yeah. you know, you could be running into different things, like you're saying, like offshoots of the rig, and mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of was a nervous factor every time you're going up, you know, there's been try a, to swim away. There's been a lot of divers that have been been killed that way, you know, hitting their head on the way up. Oh, really? Comes, like, oh, now it knocks you out. and then Knock you, you out, yeah. and you sink. How much of a, tra- like, like how, how much of a trade secret, can, like, how well can you basically describe the whole shrimp boat thing? Shrimp boat thing? Shrimp there is a thing called a shrimp boat. <laughs> what shrimp yeah. boat thing? Okay. Yes. <laughs> it's very well known. Yeah. It's very well known? It's very well known. I can't talk too many details. You don't need to talk too many details. But like, but if you, go, about, if you go behind a shrimp boat, there are fish behind them. Okay. Look around. Yeah. And why are those fish behind those shrimp boats? There's a lot of bycatch that the shrimp boats uh, offload. Attract and shrimp heads. A lot of shrimp heads. Because they they had all the shrimp and all manner of everything else. <laughs> and everything. Oh, shit, man. I think it's a ten couple of one. Couple turds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a couple turds. Taka agua. <laughs> yeah, coming out of the yeah. coming out of the out of the vessel, <laughs> and then just like holy shit, the fish. There was a lot of fish. We were blessed to find some uh, some of those anchored up, moored up shrimp. Shrimp boats. I think they were taking the day off, probably just shrimping at night, and uh, got a little bit of chum. And, and if you go to the right one, there's fish. Can be fish. There can, can be fish. fish. More often than not, you got to hunt around. It's not every every one. That's for sure. Yeah. 
and uh, I came down here with, I mean, I had, you know, I'm not like, I don't, I seldom go to do something where I'm like, I'm, my goal, I wanted to get a Cobia. Uh Um, I wanted to get a Cobia real bad. It's like a kind of a sort of almost one of my favorite fishes. Well, you got definitely, a tea, one of, you, definitely one of my favorite fish, maybe my favorite fish. You got a little tease last year, right? I missed one last year. It yeah. kind of like almost like ticked them a little bit. It made like a little uh, noise. Yeah, it was close, I think. Uh, close. I went down in the water and then like looked up and somehow, I don't know where he came from, out of the mud. He was right above you. I was behind you and, and he, he like, came right passed, above you. like yep. over my head and I remember holding on the bottom of his throat, like under his yeah. jaw yeah, and touched one off and like, it made like a slight sound as it deflected yeah. off the side of his of, of himself. Yep. And I was tantalized. <laughs> I was titillated. Titillated. And uh and this year we jump in. I was like, oh, you know, at some point I'd like to get a cobia, you know. Everything happens fast underwater. Yep. But I jumped in the water and all of a sudden just like there is a cobia. Yep. They're inquisitive. In my face. So like coming in to hang you know, out, noise, to do a pass by noise, bubbles, thrashing came in to do a pass by. Yep. And I got a Kobe, but too quick. <laughs> I got a Kobe. Too easy. Too... Was it too easy? Right off no, the boat. I want to say that it was, it was too just, quick. Just too quick. And then I got another Kobe. that was also too quick. I just got to try again. So I think happens. what I wanted is I wanted to, I wanted to dive down and have him come by a bunch of times, and I dive down and he come by a bunch of times, and I dive down and I'd get a shot, but it doesn't go like that. No, like, call him in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the one you shot was a a rider on one I had. My second one. Your second one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I shot a Kobe that was chasing Greg's shot yeah. Kobe, which happens. And then I, uh. The first yeah, shot of Kobe was chasing your Kobe. The first Kobe I shot just came came, whatever, in, yeah. just came blasting through. That was on a shrimp boat, huh? Yep. Yeah. yeah. That was a big was one, a, too. It was a nice one. Yeah. So I scratched that itch. In, in Ranella family lore, uh, my mother, there's like old black and white photos where my mother, when she was a, a, a young woman, caught a big Kobe in Mississippi. And that's an often talked about thing. <laughs> It's so often now, just, probably because there's an old black and white photo yep. of it. So it got like, yep. you know what I mean? It kept its, it has traction over the years. This is the Cobia I caught. So now you need <laughs> in to Mississippi. get the, the Steve in front of the shrimp boat in a black and white you know, with a Cobia. And put it in front of there. So yeah. we targeted Cobia. Red snapper management here is interesting. We targeted yep. a red snapper where last year when I was here, yep. it was, correct me if I'm wrong. Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Yes, the weekend. Friday, Saturday, Sunday is a recreational yep. snapper. Two, two per day, 16-inch minimum or 18? It was two per day last year. It, it went to three yep. this year. It is 16-inch minimum. 16-inch minimum. So you can, you can target red snapper Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And on holiday weekends, like 4th of July, you also get the Monday. Oh. Or the Thursday if it happened to fall on that holiday. So we targeted those. Mangrove snapper is much more liberal. Yeah. Ten seven, a day. seven days a week, 10 a day. 10 a day within your, there is a cumulative aggregate. So you could have, let's say, three red snappers and seven mangroves yep. to make so it an 10. Aggregate, yeah. You can't have 
three reds and ten mangroves. Yep, very similar. Like waterfowl is managed that way. Where it'll be like six ducks, not more of which. Right. Yep. On and on and on and on. Um, and then we then uh, the, the, can I talk about the last thing we targeted? Yeah, hey, uh, of course I can. Sure. We targeted triple tail. <laughs> which there are pictures. <laughs> we char- targeted triple tail, which sport uh, uh, rod and real people get a little touchy about because they want that to be just for them. That's okay. They didn't see the lily pads we found them. No. It's not like a, a general spot. You just have to go find the spot. No. Much guarded, uh, a, a, a guarded secret. Triple tail spots. Triple we tail. target triple tail spots. And, and um, that's really something. Dirty water. Yep. Like, so dirty, it's just you can, how can I even describe it? Like, the best you can see is to kind of get, like, you, if you're looking up, if you're down at 20 feet, looking up toward the sky, you see shadows. You see no fish detail. It's a shadow. Yeah. Everything is just like, yeah. anything you might see is like, it's either mud or kind of a shadowy, yeah. it's very spooky. It's not it's for like the rummaging heart. around. It'd be like rummaging around in a dark closet with a really shitty flashlight it's pretty close and there's yep. a guy in there that wants to beat you in the head with something yeah. there's a guy somewhere in there is a guy with while a, holding your breath somewhere there's a guy with a bat and they hit you in the head and, it was and a, you gotta hold your breath yeah. <laughs> some big bull sharks yeah yeah that's the guy with the bat yeah, yeah that's the guy with the bat the i like that the, you came on the boat and you're like that ain't for the faint of heart <laughs> it is really intimidating really intimidating yeah yeah, yeah i've had i've I've taken a couple of, of close friends that have dove all over the place to do that, and they did one dive, and they're like, nope, right back yep. in the boat. I would, have re- I would have dove down. If someone wasn't saying it's possible, I would have dove down and said, what's the point? You absolutely cannot do it. You cannot do it. That's how we target them. We find the lily pads in the right depth of water, and they're yeah. right underneath them. You had to yeah. push the largemouth out of the way. So out of co- washing out, Washing out of the delta are uprooted. Water. You like this? There are massive, pl- which yep. is true. Yep. Big, huge chunks of lily pads. Yep. Floats them. Yes. Whatever you want to call it. Like huge chunks <laughs> of lily yeah, pads. Yeah, yeah, like, like boat size, and they're coming out of the delta, yep. and they get out into the muddy water of the delta, yep. and this attracts a lot of light. Yep. Weed yeah. lines. It's just like the mahi. Yeah. It's like the sargasm weed lines. Uh, it's just the, the near shore version of it. That the mahi would be offshore, but these are, you'll get the triple tail and small jackfish under the lily pads. And they are in some muck. Yeah, they are in dirty water. Dirty little Very pads. intimidating. Yes. Sneaky. I, did, I didn't even follow Steve with the camera because I'd just be bumping into him the whole time because I had to stay so close to him. So Yeah, he had to go with the GoPro. Just, yeah. yeah, making me nervous. Yeah. We had a plan like, originally where you were going to ride on my back. <laughs> Hang on to your belt. While we, we explored around in the dark. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> that was awesome um i don't really know because i don't know but i mean this has to be uh i mean this has to be up there with the richest fisheries i've i, I think so i mean i've been all over the world you'll hear yeah. that like that and that band around southeast alaska is sort of the the richest marine ecosystem on earth like that latitude band yeah in terms of just pounds of life the water supports when you get into plankton on up right yeah. like like per unit of space pounds of life that it supports is is high yep and in some areas 
like, you know, people might think of like Hawaii, like so many fish, right? But Hawaii, like you have areas offshore in Hawaii which are regarded something as a desert. Yep. It's like something of a marine desert. Massive, massive amounts of very deep water inhabited by very few fish. Right? They're there, and, but they're, con- they're like concentrated in select places. And if you didn't know what you're doing, you could go along. You could spend a ton of time drifting along on the surface, staring down and not see shit. Like on the middle of the Pacific, yeah. right? Even though you think like, oh, tropical, no one around, must be loads of fish. That doesn't necessarily mean there's loads of fish everywhere. Um, but here, man, it's incredible. The, it's, gulf, the gulf is incredible. It is. It's a one of, one of a kind. You know, that's why removing the rigs is, is such an issue because it's, it's a special place. And every time you come down here, you need to enjoy it because the next time you come back, that rig could be gone. And it's one of those things of it's, you can come down here and take a lot of it for granted, but it's one of those things of, you know, some of the first rigs that I dove are now gone. And it's one of those things of, yeah, you have to have to enjoy it while you're down there. Ronnie, um, Cajun Ronnie, Mm -hmm. who's been on the show before, he described losing rigs as, um, he said, it's like losing a friend. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is. Yeah. To lose a good rig. I wonder what it was like here before the rigs, like yeah. the historical data on it. Like, was there? I'm sure they're the same fish, but yeah, I think the they were map. just obviously they there. We have a few few reef areas, so I would assume that they would be more congregated to those those small reef areas. Probably spots that were spectacular. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some pictures going back to like the 50s of, but mostly of like tuna and things that they caught back then. Um, which that the rigs aren't necessarily that relevant to the tuna fishery. Um, I mean, they are to a certain extent now because it it concentrates them so we can go target them. But back in those days, I think maybe before the rigs, it was more of a trolling, you know, you'd go out, troll a rip, things like that. Um, but now, now we go, now the rigs are what's attracting them. I just hold, think you have that, to, they hold the bait. Yeah, at risk of beating the subject to death, I think yeah. you have to, like, whatever it was before, let's say you could go back to 1900, okay? You go back to 1900, and we had, like, some kind of baseline data about the fishery in 1900. I don't know that that's come, like, that's not necessarily coming back. You know, like, removing the rigs isn't going to return that because of, because of why? Because of a thousand things. It could be better now. Like it, well, so you wouldn't even want to. Yeah, it might, it might be better now with the rigs. But if you look at, like, like someone, even if someone did come and say like, oh, no, 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 it was spectacular and the red, the red, the, the red snapper fishery was amazing in 1900. Okay, but shit's changed since 1900. I mean, you have uh, a lot of industrial pollutants that come down the river. You have habitat degradation in other ways. You have over, overfishing in international waters. I don't know. On and on and on and on and on. So I don't know that's come back, but what is working right now? It's like, what's working right now? Is the guy, the rigs. Yep. So it's like to, to, to think that to chase something that you that even if someone said it was great a hundred years ago, it's like there's no guarantee that that's where you're going. If you have a thing that's like a bright shining spot right now, hang on to what you have that's good. Totally. Tell you what's not working right now here is our shark problem. Mm-hmm. We have a serious shark problem offshore. Uh, you guys didn't see it where Just we were. It's too out of balance. It's, it's way out of balance because there's absolutely no shark fishing beyond three miles so like it's illegal correct there's no commercial shark there's no commercial shark fishing whatsoever and it has gotten out of balance now we're we're dealing with 
certain areas where we, you know, let's say you go tuna fishing, you hook t 10 tuna, you be lucky if you land one, all the other ones got eaten by sharks. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a problem. They, they, I'm not saying that they need to cull them, but they, but they need to bring some kind of balance. Take back a more to, localized approach to the yeah. management. Yeah, like exactly. Open, open some areas where they're doing great. The, yeah, that's yeah. what I was talking about. More local localized management of it would be would be ideal. Florida's having the same problem. I mean, they're having a shark a shark tournament in Florida this week because of the same same thing, and they're getting a lot of blowback. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people that. I mean, there's a lot of people that have never even been in the water that because they watched Nat Geo, they have this shark opinion week. on sharks and they watch too much Shark Week. <laughs> oh, yeah. My Instagram blew up, yes, last night because uh, of that shark tournament in Florida and all the shark uh, people uh, I follow. This is, you know, hard. I, I love sharks, but, you know, if there's an issue with too many sharks, then yeah, they're, it's they're, like in California. I talked to a marine biologist that studies all the sharks, the great whites. Uh, and he said that in recorded history, there's never been so many sea lions on the California coast than there is now. And the sea lions are an issue. And no, they're, they're never going to gull or do anything to the sea lions, but like because they're furry, uh, people you know like them too much. Yeah. Furry, charismatic megafauna. If it's got eyelashes. <laughs> no, if it's got eyelashes, it lives in the water. And it blinks. People's, <laughs> and blinks. People really Can you imagine that. if it blinks? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Brandon, tell people how to, uh, even though they can't book a spearfishing trip, that's just your, that's your recreational passion. Yeah. Um, you can get a hold of, you may, as far as you can get a hold of me. Yeah, to go fishing. Uh, yeah, Instagram, uh, Spiro Brando, or uh, Ecstatic Sport Fishing, either on, on both of those, or uh, Brandon Hendrickson's. Uh, sport fishing and spear fishing on uh, Facebook. I gotta warn you though, you gotta be ready to be in a boat with a guy that wants to catch fish. <laughs> Brandon Savage. <laughs> no messing around. Yeah. I do like to catch fish. If you don't want to catch fish, go somewhere else. But yeah. if you want to like be very focused on the capture of fish, I would go to this guy. <laughs> yeah. It was great, Brandon. Thank you. Yeah. It's fun. Like like hanging out with you is great. You learn a lot. Um you're you're intense about your discipline, which I think when people are paying to go out somewhere, that's what they expect. And you produce. Look at how much <laughs> I hope so. A lot of fish. Yeah, we, we crushed it every day. Yeah, yeah. We, had, we had three days of amazing, yeah. amazing weather, amazing diving. We had a good team of good divers too. Yeah, so. but I, I imagine as a guide, like you'd expect to say, like you're you're versatile, meaning like you're going off. You're obsessive about current information. Yep. Not the way the water's flowing, which is part of current information, but you're <laughs> interested in like what's going on with the weather, what's going on with water temperatures, water clarity, be flexible, do right. There's a lot if of that things. don't work, you do that. If that don't work, you do that. If that don't work, you do that. Like there's a lot of things. All the stuff into you it. need to be to be like good at fishing. Yeah. As your yeah. deckhand put it, there's two kinds of people in this world. There's fishermen and those that wish they were. <laughs> <laughs> There might be a third out there. I think I met a couple, but does that cut bait? Isn't that the chest? <laughs> and then you got your chummer. <laughs> you got Chester the chummer. All right, thanks. And uh, and, and uh, tell folks where to find you, Greg, or where to find your product assortments. Um, yeah, it's roballendiving.com. 
So any anytime you look up Rob Allen spear guns, you'll something will pop up that has to do with me. So. And if you have a question about Rob Allen stuff, you're in your in in you're in the U.S. of A. You'll probably wind up talking to Greg. Yeah, if it's if it's in the U.S., uh, you'll end up talking to me um, or my wife or one of one of the guys at the shop. And then if it gets fed to South Africa, it'll probably get sent back to me. Okay. <laughs> so you'll probably get talk, you'll talk. So to So if me you some email point. someone in South Africa, they'll want you want to be talking, say, talk to Greg. Talking to yeah, regular talk Greg, to Greg anyway. Say, yeah. And uh, Mike, you, you, I imagine because you're a photographer and all that, you're on social. Yeah, uh, Rabe Photo and RabePhoto.com. So Spell it for people. R-A-A-B-E-P-H-O-T-O. Okay. If you need a picture of something taken underwater. I'm your man. Can you, your man. And Mike, Mike's working on a cool uh, white sea bass documentary right now. I heard about right that now. documentary. Yeah. yeah. Pretty I'm, cool. I'm actually, at the end of this month, hopefully I'll be done filming and then on to editing and hoping to have like a premiere this winter, December, January, and then I'm going to submit to film festivals. You're going to call it all about white sea bass. I, so I'm going to do uh, like a photo, a, a contest on Instagram and see what people, names people can give me. Got and it. the winner will get a print. I just haven't done it yet. Sweet. Because I don't awesome. know what to name it. A white sea bass <laughs> documentary. That is the hardest part. It's yeah. like soup to nuts on white sea bass, right? Uh, yeah. It would be like behaviors and then it will be human impact. The from the natives to uh, gill netting to the recovery of white sea bass. You know, natural history. Yeah, they stopped Cold gill netting in 92, so it's been 30 years. So it's kind of cool. It's 30 years of lifespan of white sea bass. So we're kind of seeing what gill netting, the stopping of gill netting, what it's done. Oh, nice. nice. And yeah, the gill netting decimated white sea bass. And uh, Justin. Yep. Married to Kimmy Warner. So if you go look at Kimmy Warner stuff, it's mostly taken by Justin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can find me at Kimmy Swimmy uh, on Instagram. Just kidding. Uh, no, but we, uh, we do. Yeah, I'm on Instagram too, Cinematowski, but we have some exciting things coming out with Meat Eater yep. coming out this fall. So uh, working with my wife, Kimmy, on that and my son, Buddy, on that too. And uh, so this fall, there'll be some cool uh, episode series and uh, videos and things like that. Right. And then uh, Chester the Dive Master. I'll be here. Still at Musky Chat. Musky Chat. Do you know Tommy Edson, after he came in and did trivia and performed so well, the guys at work have dubbed him the Blue Collar Scholar. <laughs> I love it. Did he change his at? <laughs> he went and secured the... He did he really? The, the, yeah, blue collar the Blue scholar. Collar Scholar. Fork Truck Driver, Trivia Master. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, 
The decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to decked.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. 